biggest threat of the church? Oh, people are going to give me a long answer saying, well, the worldliness. You know, the, the, the church is becoming very worldly. Uh, doctrine, weird doctrines are coming in. Um, oh, it depends on the country, you know, because Canada is very hard and, 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 and people don't, you know, resist the word of God. And, and so they give me a lot of reasons why um, the church is under attack or what is the biggest threat of the church. But I want to give you three things that we need to go back to basics with. The truth. The truth has been tempered with. And sometimes we get out of focus because we participate in discussions because the truth has been tempered with. And people want to pawn off to us the things that they consider the truth, the interpretations that they give to the word. The truth has been tempered with. And as church, we need to stick to the word and see what is the truth. What comes out of the mouth of God, what is written there, is the truth. Nothing else. Nothing less. Now, they can talk about things that are, that are going on, and I myself tend to be a little bit, you know, conspiracy theorist. I, I'm suspicious of everything that goes on. And I always think, oh, don't take things at face value, you know, nothing. Uh, the vaccines... I got vaccinated because I wanted to come to Canada. But I had my suspicions. I think when there's money involved, ooh, and that's, all, that's where I go with my mind. So, and, and I kind of like to entertain conspiracy theorist things, you know. And, but then I have to go back to the truth and say, okay, yeah, I'm just, you know, making things up maybe or that's the way I perceive them. But it's not my opinion. It's not my opinion that counts. It's not my opinion that are gonna, I have to convert people to my opinion. I have to tell people that the, the vaccines are going to cause us all to die. We had, we had all kinds of things going on during the pandemic in Costa Rica. And they said, okay, they're planning on vac vaccinating this amount of people. That means it, the scripture where it says that two-thirds of the population is going to die is all the people that got vaccinated. And I, and I would tell people, well, if that's their plan, they're going to be amazed that the people are not going to die because God is going to have his hand on the people. So we can, you know, get into these debates and, and, and whatnot, but you know what? The truth has been tempered with, and our, us ourselves tend to be distracted. Even Jesus said, and I'm reading out of the Amplified Bible, when I tell you the truth, you just naturally don't believe me. They would naturally question everything Jesus said. He said, I arrive on the scene I tell you the plain truth, and you refuse to have a thing to do with me. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. We tend to go after whatever is going on, whatever, you know, Oprah involved in whatever, uh, grooming kids, and this goes on, and that goes on, and, and, and we debate it all, but we don't go back to the truth. We don't share hope. We don't share a verse. We, we, we're so distracted with things. 
Whoever is of God, this is a different verse in John 8, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you're not of God. Well, that's a truth that's very harsh. Anyone who belongs to God gladly listens to the words of God, but you don't listen because you don't belong to God. Extremely harsh. He gets an A plus in harshness. Number two, not only has the truth been tampered with and sometimes we're confused, we have no idea as the body of Christ what the sound doctrine is all about. We have no idea. I heard that they did this survey. Before I go to the survey, I want you to know that biblical doctrine is the foundation of the Christian faith. Based on the will of God. That's doctrine. Doctrine means that God is giving us specific instructions that need to be applied to our lifestyle. That's doctrine. Doctrine excludes any of your personal circumstances, your view, or your opinion. Not included. It's the will of God that we need to apply to our lives. In Titus 2.1, it says, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. What is sound doctrine? means specific, sacred, and non-negotiable. Too many Christians are selling off their doctrine. They negotiate. They negotiate with God. God, if, you know, give and take a little bit here. I know you love me the way I am, so I'm just going to get away with this. I know I can get away with this. In the survey... And you know what? It sounds good, but when you really come down to it, it's not correct. For example, this is a survey amongst Christians. 65% of Christians believe everyone is born innocent. Now, if you just take that sentence at face value, you think, yeah, those little babies, they're just so cute. No, they, they, they go to heaven when they die. All the aborted babies go to heaven when they die because we think they're born innocent. God will take them to heaven. I'm not saying that. But nobody's born innocent. We are all born into this earth with a sinful nature. And I know God will have immense compassion on babies and children and not hold them accountable until they come to the age of that they can be accountable, till they know the difference between right and wrong and they know that they need Jesus to forgive their sins. God will wait for that. And if they die before that, he will receive them in heaven. But saying 65% believe that everyone is born innocent, no way, Jose. That is not the truth. 55% believe the Bible is not literally true. Sad. 43% of Christians believe Jesus is not God. I don't know how they, they have probably not read the word. They're just spiritual. I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. There's a lot of Christians that are spiritual and have no clue what God is all about. 33% believe that salvation is not exclusive 
or exclusively something that you obtain through Christ Jesus. That God will take into account other things. Your heart. You know, God knows your heart. Oh, there's so much confusion. This survey was very long. Confusion about heaven, hell, eternal life. Why is it important for us to be established in the doctrine? Because you will live what you believe. If you do not believe that Jesus is the only way to get to God, the only way to salvation, then you will portray that to those around you. You will be encumbered by the fact that they know God or they don't know God. It wouldn't affect you. Why? Because in your doctrine, you believe it's not something very necessary. God knows your heart. Why is it important to be based on a sound doctrine that is clear, specific, non-negotiable? Why do we have to be that strong in our doctrine? Because you live what you believe. And you are going to share that with the people around you. Now, I'm giving you the basis on what we base our ministry on. Although we mostly work with children, we base it on always be established in the truth. We share the truth to the children, teach the truth to the children, teach them to be involved in the word of God, to learn from the word of God. We include them when we go out and share the word. We demand that they know what the doctrine is and that they share it because they will share from the wealth that they have within them. A child will talk about Jesus when he is convinced that Jesus is the only way. And he will speak those words unashamedly. He will be more bold than anybody else. We have taken our children witnessing and they have to come with proof they fill out the data of people that, that pray with them to receive Jesus so we can do follow-up follow calls. And one adult came to me one day when we were coming back, and one of the kids was sharing, and they laugh about it. One of the kids was sharing how this adult came through the park and he handed him a track and started talking to him. He said, if you have a moment, I want to talk about Jesus. And this man just walked by, crumbled up the track, threw it on the ground, and continued walking. When he turns around to see, he realized that he was dealing with a kid. When he sees the kid picking up the track, sitting down on the bench in the park, and, and, and kind of, you know, trying to fix it again. So he approaches the kid and he says, I'm sorry. He says, that's okay, I'll give it to somebody else. This man was shamed into sitting ne down next to the kid and he says, well, tell me what you wanted to tell me. Okay. So the kid just, you know, talks about Jesus, talks about Jesus because he not only knows it from the word, he's personally experienced it, and he's sharing that with this man. He led this man to the Lord, and this man would always, for years, now he moved away to another town, would always give us cakes when we had children's parties. Because he said, I came to Jesus because of that kid, because of that track that I crumbled up, and I saw how much he valued even the piece of paper that he wanted. Well, I'll fix it so I can give it to somebody else. 
So he was shamed into sit, sitting next to the kid and hearing the gospel. Kids are so innocent when they share the gospel, but they have to know doctrine. In our ministry, we always say we do not entertain children. It is not plain Sunday school. We have a two-year process that starts as soon as the kids can read and write. So they're approximately seven, eight years old when we get them in. And we start discipling them. We give them a beginner's course on, on what happens when you receive Jesus. We take them on a retreat so we can minister to them. Get them delivered from whatever, whatever might be going on. Most of these children come from unchurched families. And you should see how on fire they are. Then they go into a six-month course, which other children give to them. That is, what, what is expected in Christian life? How do I deal with different things that might come my way? What is the doctrine on salvation, on baptism, on, on all these things? And when he finishes that, we have a two-year uh, Bible school for children. And we teach them how to be leaders. We teach them how to go and get children in. Sad to say, they mostly bring adults in because it's very hard to approach unknown children. So sometimes they can bring from school or from their family, but if we go out witnessing People don't like you to just approach their child. You direct yourself to the adults. But they know how to get to the adults too. They're not phased by that. They're not phased if a person looks angry because they're so excited to go and share the gospel. And they know that it is necessary, that a life is on the line. So they're passionate about what they're doing. So that's basically what our ministry is based on. Like I said, we live what we believe. Paul said to Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. He's talking about people in the church. He said, you know what, they just want to accumulate knowledge, but sometimes that knowledge is not based on the true doctrine. Be careful. He says in other verses, I'm just going to make it shorter. He says, immerse yourself when, he, when it comes to doctrine. Guard the doctrine, guard the word, guard the treasure that has been deposited in you. Persevere, continue in these things. All that he says, take heed, pay close, close attention. It is very important that as Christians, we know what our doctrine is. And for that, we have to go back to basics. And I finished saying with back to basics, and then I'll share some nice testimonies with you. If you're insecure about those two things, what is the truth? If you have gotten sidetracked, of what the truth is, then you're not understanding your purpose. And if you do not know what your doctrine is, why you do the things you do, or what God expects you to do, if you do not know your doctrine, what makes you passionate to share Jesus, then you are not effective. The first one 
will cut you short because you won't understand your purpose. And the second one, not knowing your doctrine, will not allow you to fulfill that purpose. That is the basic gospel. When we lose focus, we can make everything that is this size, this size, and we lose out of focus what Jesus did on the cross. I'm going to tell you a true story. It's sad, it's funny, but it's sad, bittersweet. Turns out there was a church in the States, and, and I know this because one of the teachers from Bible school it went to that church, and what he was sharing was, I mean, he even had the pictures to prove it. Turns out that the church was flourishing, doing well, bringing in new people, evangelizing. I mean, they were on fire. Turns out that they built a beautiful building. They were very proud of the fact that they built that building. They painted all nice. But then they saw that they had this one wall at the entrance that was just very long, and they did not know what to do with the wall. So they said, well, why don't we make a nice mural? Is that what you say? Mural? Okay. And they contracted a painter, and he said, okay, what, what, what do you want me to paint? And he said, the Garden of Eden, Eden with Adam and Eve in the garden. Okay. The painter did a wonderful, wonderful job, and beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. He put Adam and Eve in the middle of this beautiful garden that he had painted. Turns out that he had placed leaves on them in the appropriate places. But even with the little leaf here, Adam's trunk looked odd. So he painted a belly button on Adam. Right above the leaf, a belly button. Because just a trunk with nothing looked very strange. Do you know that there was a church split because of Adam's belly button? People started saying, we need to repaint that. Adam was not born from a woman, so, you know, he didn't have a belly button. Another group started saying, well, maybe God already created him with a belly button, so then when his kids were born, he wouldn't be shocked that they had a little round thing in the middle of the body. What do we know if he had a belly button or not? It became such an argument. The pastor tried to calm people down and saying, it's not important. They were losing sight of what the, the basic thing of why we are a church. And the pastor, not important. They had a church split. The belly button people to one side and the no belly button people to the other side. They ended up abandoning the building and raising up two different churches, all because of Adam's belly button. It's possible, people. When strife sets in and people lose focus on, sometimes it's forgiveness. Sometimes things happen, and I just wish I could bop them over the head, that you have Christians for 30 years, and then for a little thing, they get offended. And you think, you've been a Christian for 30 years. You have forgiven worse things. And now for this little thing, it becomes huge. You start talking so much that you get people taking your side until everybody is upset about that situation. And we have to rectify it. 
cannot believe it. Back to basics. What is that? You start get to give your attention to the simplest and most important matters after having ignored them for a while. Well, I want to share some testimonies of what we do with the kids. And this is basically what we teach them, the truth. Love the truth. Embrace the truth. The truth is everything for you. Their relationship with God, they're going to base their decisions on that. We are very, very um, like generals when it comes to the kids. We have even taught the kids. We have called a fast. And I remember that when we started out with the kids like that, some parents came up to me and they said, how could you call a fast? They're kids. And I said, okay, first of all, I'm only asking them to fast breakfast. At lunchtime, they can eat. I'm only asking that. Not even a full day, so come on. Yeah, but the children, they need their nourishment. They're still growing. And I said, you know what? If you read the story of Jonah, the king even made the animals fast, and those poor things didn't even know what it was for. I said, children can fast. No, I don't want my... Okay, let's ask little Johnny here. Johnny, are you going to fast? Because, you know, we're going to go out and evangelize and we're going to fast and pray this and this day. Are you with me or not? I'm with you. And we have kids praying and fasting before we go out and do anything. They are passionate about what they believe. My last newsletter was about a young man called Abram. And he grew up with us since he was seven comes from an extremely dysfunctional home. And nevertheless, he is so strong in the word right now that he will say no to opportunities to go study in other countries, to receive grants. He is in university right now. He leads certain debates on abortion and on different things like that. But he will always speak the truth. He will always speak about God. He will always start with a prayer. And he said, and I will do this as long as God wants me to do this. But at the same time, he can grab his guitar, and you will see him uh, under the bamboo bush leading some kids in worship. That's what he's passionate about. The Bible says very clearly that we have to be instant, and it talks about preach the word. Preach the word, be instant, in season and out of season. So that means whenever you have an opportunity. You can't wait around until the Canadians are going to be all fearful. You have to provoke that moment. You have to provoke the occasion to talk to somebody about Jesus. And this is what we teach the kids. We do target people. Every couple of months, we will tell the kids, who do you know in your life that's an unbeliever? So-and-so. Okay, pick one. Pick one. We're going to pray for that person every single day. You're going to lay hands on the little paper with the name of that person. You're going to seek that person out. You're going to invite that person. You're going to speak the word to that person. And you don't let go until that person receives Jesus. The kids do that. 
They're passionate. And that's why this past weekend, while I was already here, but we were going to baptize 60 people. 60 people. And this is the second baptism this year. We just did a retreat two weeks ago. We took 50 children to this retreat. About 25 of them come from non-churched homes but have received the Lord. It's amazing what God is doing. And maybe you're thinking in your mind, oh, it would be wonderful to be in Costa Rica, so revival-like, you know. The Spirit of God is there. What's wrong with you? You have Canada. Is all of Canada converted? Not. But then we get in our minds that, well, Canada is just too difficult. People don't need God. And if they don't need God, then I don't know how to talk to them. They're human beings, and they will need God. You have to look at everything that surrounds your life as an opportunity to reach out with the gospel. At the refuge that we have, where about 70 kids, we pick the poorest of the poorest of the poorest, because even in the slums, you have like levels. You know, you have ghetto chic and you have, you know, whatever. We pick the lowest ones, the kids that go hungry. Parents who are extremely abusive or are the drug dealers or whatever. We picked 70 of those kids who come to the refuge to eat. We give them classes so they don't miss out on school. We, we, above everything, we preach the word of God to them. When the pandemic hit, we had just opened the refuge December, January, February, like beginning March, first week of March. We had to close the door. So we had had the refuge for three months at that spot. We had to close the door. Government ordered closing the door. And we only had 15, I think it was 15 eggs. People start crying. You know what? I'll tell you how extreme it became over there in the slums. We had dogs lining up outside of the refuge because there were no scraps to give the dogs. And the dogs would smell food, and dogs would line up outside of the refuge. That's how bad it became. These are people who don't have an education. These are people who have no income, no health insurance, no unemployment to anything, nothing. They don't own their homes. They have shacks that are probably the size of... The seats here. We have one lot that is about this section here, just the seat area. 23 people live there. They take turns to sleep. Now the pandemic hit. Now they definitely don't have any work. There is no money because they live day to day. People were hurting. And they would come to the refuge and cry. And all we had was 15 eggs. And we started telling them, just like Paul said, when the, when, when the ship was about to go down and, and people were screaming and crying and, and we're going to die. And he said, if you stay with me, it's all going to be good. And we're saying this to people that are used to 
reacting in anger. If you say something that offends them or that they don't agree with, you might get stabbed or shot. That's very normal. We had two people from Canada came in to help us with our roof in the refuge. And uh, they were on the roof when down below the shootout started. (laughs) And they were laying on the roof, you know, so they wouldn't be seen. But that's normal. And play daytime, you know, lunchtime. That was the diversion of lunchtime. So you have these situations, and we said to them, you know what? God is going to come through for us. God will not let us down. We did not have anything to feed them with. And you know what? God gave us miracle pancakes. God increased things, and we would tell people, these women that are prostitutes that would abuse their children. And we say, let's, let's call out to God. Let's pray together. And to this day, now we've been two years out of the pandemic, and to this day they come and they say, what happened in the pandemic changed their heart. Because they had miracle pancakes. I started making this mix, like this pre-mix, that they only had to add water to it. And, but I couldn't make, for that amount of people, I couldn't make, I would buy a sack of flour and a sack of this and a sack of that, and I tried to make this pre-mix. I would put oats in it, and I, I tried to make it as nutritious as possible. And, but they would get probably a pound worth per family. And they would come back and they said, every two weeks we tried to give them food. And they would say, the pound of pancake mix lasted the whole two weeks. And we even shared with the neighbors because these are miracle pancakes. We had a man from up north, we don't even know him, have never met him. He sent a truck down to the refuge with a dead pig. So we found somebody that could cut up the pig, and everybody took slabs of meat home that they had not even eaten in the good times. They saw vegetables come in by the truckload. They saw grains coming in that people said, I just remembered the refuge, and I thought, how are these people doing in the time of the pandemic? We had so much food. And you know what? The pandemic finished. And it stopped. It brought us right through. And we told the people, nobody is going to die here of this virus because I'll tell you what, in areas of the slums where hygiene is like zilch, where so many people live, one on top of the other, everybody got COVID 10 times over. And we told everybody, you will not die and you will not go hungry. We guarantee that. Signed, God. Now, you have to be a little bit brave to be able to say that to that kind of people. And it happened. Seize the moment, every opportunity. I've shared with my family how having cancer gave me the rite of passage with other people that have cancer. So what do I do? Every time I have, in Costa Rica, you have to sit there. You have an appointment at 8 a.m., but turns out they asked, 20 people to come at 8 a.m. And so you just sit there for hours 
with all these other people that have an appointment. So it's not uncommon for me to be four, six hours sitting outside the door of the doctor. I'm bored after that while. So I'll start talking about Jesus, sharing Jesus, sharing hope. I thought, I'm sitting here. I've told my kids, they now have a kindergartner. I said, it gave you right of passage with people with little kids. Take advantage of it. Go through the stages. Take advantage of it. Every moment there's an open door, go through it. Turn it to God's advantage. There's a parable in the Bible, probably the most known parable. It's the parable of the sower. And I've never seen a parable so misused than that parable. Let me see. I'm going to test you guys on that one. The sower is who? In the story, the sower represents who in the parable? Parabola, whatever, in English. The sower sows the seed. The sower in the story is God. And the seed is the word. If you look at Jesus' explanation, that's what happens. God is sowing the seed. It's the word. This parable has only been used to take up offerings. And then they say, let's sow into good ground. Lordy Lord. When you look at the parable... God is sowing the word, and God himself sows where he's only going to get a 30% increase. But he thought that that was worth it because he's going to go after those souls. I have to sow the seed wherever I am. It doesn't matter only good soil because I want a 100% increase. No, I need to sow where there's only 30. I need to sow where there's only 60. I need to sow when there's only 90 because I have to be constant, instant, in season and out of season. It's not up to me to decide which soil is good. It's up to me to sow the seed, pray over that seed, guard that seed, make sure it takes fruit. Now, some might give me a 30% return, and some might give me a 100% return. But it is ridiculous that we have just reduced that to just money. And that we have the right to say, this is good ground. I'm only going to sow in good ground because then God will give me 100% increase. Sorry, the parable is not about that. The parable talks about sowing the word. And it's amazing. God is, is, is painting us a picture that people will sometimes not respond to the word. But he never says you're stupid if you're going to sow in, in, in a ground where you're only going to have a little bit of increase. He never told them stop sowing there. Never did. But that's where we get our doctrine wrong sometimes. Take advantage of every moment. During this time with cancer, I have led incountable amount of people to the Lord. I have been able to just, it became a new ministry. 
Suddenly this door opens and I go in and I said, well, if I'm here, while I'm here, I might as well start preaching the gospel. And this is what we teach the children. They come without us actually specifically sending them out. They will come and share testimonies. This and this and this happened in my home. This and this and this happened in the neighborhood. And I told them, let's pray. For a while there, the kids found me the ministry to the dead, the nearly dead, I must say. They weren't dead, because then I couldn't preach to them, right? So they would go around, and like I said, in the slums, everybody knows everybody, and they all kind of live together. And they purposely went to elderly people that they had heard that maybe, you know, had been sent home, get your affairs in order, and the little kids would knock on the doors go in and talk to these people and say, you need Jesus. You know you're going to die, and you need Jesus. They would have these people crying. And I remember one situation. Talk about seizing the moment. The kids came to me, and they said, there's a lady dying. She had cancer of the mouth and the tongue. I'd never seen something like that. It's horrible. And the stench, huh, unexplicable. So they came to me, and they said that she was dying. The, the, the doctor said, said there's no hope. She could only put a straw on the side of her mouth to kind of get some nourishment of some sorts. So the kids said, we told her you would come. And I said, okay. They, they were getting customers for me, you know. Go pray with so-and-so. Go pray with so-and-so and go pray with so-and-so. Okay, okay. So they came with Doña Blanca. That was her name. And I, so they took me one day. You know, I was escorted by this little group of kids. We knocked on the door and um, went and see Doña Blanca. While well, she was laying down uh, in the little living room she had, and the stench when we came in, her, her tongue had split open, so it was just flesh, and it decomposed flesh, and she could hardly articulate any words. So I sat, I mean, I'm human too, and I don't like things stinking, so I sat at a little distance from her, and I start sharing Jesus with her, and I said, I want to... I want to pray with you and that, you know, you receive Jesus. And, and she was crying and she said, yes, she wanted Jesus. She could hardly repeat my prayer, but she did. So amen. And I said, well, now you're ready to go with Jesus. I need to go. Bye-bye. You know, I had kind of, <laughs> I think I'm going to be ready to throw up or something here. But anyways, I thought, okay, bye. I get to the door and I just hear her mumbling something and I turn around and I can't hear her very well, and so I approach her a little bit further and further, and, and she finally says to me, I had to get really close, and she says, can you pray for me, because I don't want to die, I want to live, and I thought, I was good with the receive Jesus prayer, and I thought, well, you're going to go straight to heaven, because you're just kind of a little bit of an impossible case. So I said, okay, I'll pray for you, but it's Jesus that does the job, you know, and, and I'm trying to wiggle out of my responsibility, of course. 
uh, Jesus is the one that heals, and if he doesn't want to heal, well, at least you're good to go. So she says, I want to live. So I take out a little bottle of oil, and I said, well, I'll pray for you then. Let, let's pray, and, and we'll just wait on Jesus. So I prayed for her. I asked for her to be healed, to be, you know, receive life as she wanted it. Two, three months go by, and the kids come, and they say, oh, you need to visit Doña Blanca again. I said, she's still alive? Oh, wow. And they said, no, she's healed now. Really? I go to see Doña Blanca, and she is dancing in her little room, and she's rejoicing, and, and, and she's just so excited. This is an illiterate woman. She had never learned how to read and write. Turns out that I come in, and she's telling me how everything turned to normal. It just went little by little. Her tongue healed up. She went to the doctor. He was amazed, and, and he said, but, you know, no operation or doctor in the world could have helped you with that. And she said, and now, she said, everybody in the neighborhood knows my condition, how my condition was. And so I stick my tongue out to everybody. And she said, and I said, see, see, it's healed. It's gone. I can eat normal. My mouth is normal. And I said, oh, that's wonderful. That's a great ministry to have. You continue to give testimony about Jesus. Then she comes to me and she says, um, I have a confession to make. And I said, okay, what's the confession? She says, you left your little bottle of oil here. Oh, I did? I didn't notice. I have several of those things. So, oh, I didn't notice. And she says, uh, but I did something. Okay, what did you do? And I thought, I don't know, you know, just as long as she didn't do witchcraft. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, okay. So what did you do with my little bottle of oil? And she said, well, I've been giving testimony to people, you know, about the healing power of God. And turns out that a lady came in and she's always had very, very severe migraine headaches to a point where she throws up. She, she, she can't stand the light. She gets very, very sick. So I was telling her about the healing power of God, and she was in that condition. And I told her, I have a little bit of oil here. Why don't I pray for you, and you will be healed? Well, the lady almost ran out of the house, and she said, that's sacrilegious. You cannot do that. Only the priest or pastor can do that. You cannot touch that oil. So she says to me, Doña Blanca, I'm having the conversation with her, and she says, well, she got me there for a moment because I wasn't sure if that was true. She said, but then she says, well, why don't we just try it out? I pray for you. If, you know, lightning doesn't strike us, I guess God is not mad. So the lady, oh, oh, oh okay. So then Doña Blanca says to me, well, now I was in a real pickle because I couldn't remember what you did with the oil. She said, I just know that you put it on my head somehow. She said, but I don't know if you just smeared it on, dropped it on, or made a nice sign of the cross. I couldn't remember. So she said, just to make it extra, extra good, I decide to put the sign of the cross on her forehead. And I prayed, in the name of Jesus, be healed. And did the thing. She was instantly healed. Then Doña Blanca says to me, she said, I had a huge scab here that was just not healing. 
And she said, and I still had some oil here. So I went, in the name of Jesus, this tube, because I don't want to waste the oil. And she was healed. And so I'm just kind of like, you know, oh, it's so cute, you know, so innocent. And so she said, but now that I told you, do you want your oil back? And I said, no. I want you to continue to pray, but pray in the name of Jesus. Don't do weird things, okay? Pray in the name of Jesus. This woman died several years later, but people would come to her house, and she would share about her healing, and she would lead them to the Lord with the little knowledge she had, and then she would make the sign of the cross with her little oil and have people healed. She had a better healing ministry than anybody I've ever seen. Seize the moment. What is the basics? That we sow the seed, that we be established in the truth, that we know our doctrine. If we do not know it, we cannot fulfill our purpose. It makes no sense. If I don't believe in heaven and hell, then I'm not going to be worried about somebody's salvation. If I continue to believe that Canada is too hard and that nobody here is going to receive the gospel, that's exactly the attitude you're going to have, and you're not going to win every, anybody over to the Lord. It's not that. Maybe Canada is a 30 percenter. Maybe Canada is a 60 percenter. I don't know. But if you think circumstances make re really the moment for us to evangelize, you're wrong. Because I've been to Africa, I've been in the slums, I've had guns pointed at me and still preach the gospel. Why? That's what we're called to do. That's going back to basics. And I'm not talking about the ground or the hardened person or whatever happens. God will make it come to pass. Last story. Last one. In Guatemala, we started a church in the slums as well extremely violent slums, the, the, the gang members, and I don't know if you've seen on the news, the gangs in El Salvador, in Honduras, and Guatemala are some of the most powerful ones in the world. Imagine that one of the gangs right next to the church, the little church we started, had one of those grenade launchers. That's the weapons that they had. Nobody would come in there. Police couldn't come in there. They tried one time, and they sequestered the police, and the army had to come in, killing a whole bunch of people in order to free the police. That's where we were. Would you consider that tough circumstances to preach the gospel? Yes. Well, turns out we had a little church with a dirt floor, and we start giving the people food, malnourished children. We were working together with... Um, the peace, not the Peace Corps, the uh, Medicos Sin Fronteras, um, Doctors Without Borders, is that how you call them? Doctors Without Borders. So they had put up a big truck and they were vaccinating the kids and because and, and, children would die left, right, and center. Water was contaminated. It was just, it was just a really sad situation. So they would give us the most extreme cases. We had about 150 kids that even had problems with their memory, with their physical development, with their mental development because of being malnourished. So we had a feeding program of about 150 kids. And 
turns out that the man right in front of us, his daughter, would cook for the church, for, for the kids. And, but he was bad, bad, bad news. This man would tap off electricity and would sell electricity to about 100 shacks and come out and give you a receipt. That's really weird because you don't even have a meter. But he would charge everybody for the electricity. He was sought after. I mean, there was a gang that was after him because he stole and manipulated. and, And I mean, he was pretty bad came to a point where he was, um, he asked one day for if he could borrow some of our benches. We had just very simple wood benches for the AA meeting that they were going to have. We said, yeah, sure, you know, we're here to help the community. Take the benches. Well, about five months later, no benches. So my husband goes up to the guy that's in charge of the AA meeting, and he said, hey, my benches never came back. And, and the other one said, what do you mean, your benches? He said, Lush, which is the guy I'm talking about, Lush uh, paid me back a debt that he had with me, and he paid me with the benches. My husband said, well, those are our benches. But he would, he would do that kind of thing. Well, one day, um, Lush's wife came in, and he had gotten into such a pickle that um, they were trying to escape. And she comes to me and she says, I came to say goodbye because I'm going to the States with the, with the guy that takes a whole group of people to the States. And I'm going to find work there and we're going to pay off some of these people so they stop persecuting us. And I said, you know, Doña Linda, I said, if you would receive the Lord, if you would only know the Lord... I said, you could stay here and stop being exposed and going illegally to the States. Too much happens there in Mexico. People disappear. And she got very angry at me. And she says, only because my daughter works with you did I have enough respect to come and say goodbye. She said, but I didn't really want to deal with you. And I already went to the witch and she lit some candles and she told me I was going to do fine. I think I testified to her in, with some bad words because I got so spitting mad that she would tell me in the church that the witch had told her that it was going to be okay. And I said, Doña Linda, it's not going to be okay. And when you're, there's a word in, 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 in Spanish that says desgraciad, means like you're dirt, you know, you're scum. I said, then, then, remember God. I said, because that's how it's going to go with you. It's going to eat you up. Anyway, she yelled some things at me. I yelled some things at her, and she left. Turns out, about a week later, the Lush family, not the, the, the dad, but the children, start coming, and they said, our mom was lost because the police... Uh, the immigration police ran after them in this desert in Mexico, and, and she got disattached from the entire group, and, and, and we don't know where she is, and she might be dead, and they might have taken her prisoner. We don't know. Let's pray. And I'm in my inside thinking, oh, God, deal with that woman. I hope that the gospel comes to this whole entire family because they were needing it. And... About five, six months went by. We had not heard from Mama Lush. She had disappeared. 
Six months go by, and the family gets a phone call from the U.S. Mama Lush had arrived in Los Angeles. And the first thing she says to the, her children, she says, Can you please tell Pastor Carol that I received the Lord because I was the desgraciada, the, the scum. I became the scum, and I received the Lord. So it wasn't seven years later, we had, we drove from Guatemala all the way to Canada five times, back and forth. On one of these trips, this is many, many years ago, we decided to stop by Los Angeles. In the meantime, all her family was there. She got all her family there. She had a good job. But we finally had time to sit down and say, what happened? And she was telling us that she's an illiterate woman, once again, and she got lost, and she said, I don't know where Guatemala is. She says, I was in the desert and so afraid. She said, hungry, they only have a, a, a bottle of water with them, no change of clothes. And she said, and I would wander around, but every noise would make me scared. And she said, I literally dug a hole and sat in it trying to... Um, stay away from anybody. Turns out that after a couple of days, she had to come out of that hole. She was hungry. And she sees this bus. She had not seen a bus come by in a whole week. She sees this bus and decides to stop this bus. She gets on and she says to the bus driver, I have no money. I am from Guatemala. I got disconnected from the group that I was going to the States with. And I am very, very hungry. Can you please help me? This guy took up an offering in the bus. And he said, people, she's hungry. Let's, you know, whatever coins you have, let's gather money. And he said, I know where to take you. He took the bus. He was a Christian man. He took the bus and parked it right in front of the pastors of a church way in the mountains. And he said, just knock on the door and tell them the story. They'll take you in. She lived with that family for five months. In the meantime, she receives the Lord. She was baptized. She was taught by these pastors. And she kept on saying that no telephones here. I can't phone my family. I need, I want to get to the States. Well, these pastors did not know anything either. So they decided when they heard a preacher from Puerto Rico coming to a local city close by, they took her to this man and they said, what can you do for her? She's illegal. She's lost. She has no money, no job. And, and, and what can you do for her? And the man says, oh, I have several businesses in Los Angeles. I will uh, do her paperwork and take her legally and give her a job. And that's how she ended up six months later in Los Angeles. In the meantime, in the seven years that we didn't see her, her whole entire family, even Papa Lush, the one that gave our benches away, he received the Lord. And it was amazing to reconcile with this family in Los Angeles now and for them to cry, to ask for forgiveness, and to see what God had done. Every moment we get, we need to lift up the name of Jesus. That is my last testimony. Now I pray that the basics will be in your heart. And as soon as you go out, every person you cross is an opportunity to talk about Jesus. But what is your doctrine? We're going to see it 
by what you live. Simple. People can say, I love, you know, preaching to the lost. 25 years go by, and you never had the pleasure of leading one to Jesus? Hmm, I doubt that. So I want to pray that the basics stay in your heart. Don't play with the truth. Don't sell out the truth. Don't be sidetracked because of other truths, many truths. And know what your doctrine is and be passionate about it because that is what you will live. If you fail in the first one with the truth, you will not know your purpose. And if you fail in the second one, you will not fulfill your purpose. So can I pray? Yes. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you, Father, because your word brings life and light and guidance to our lives. Father God, if we need a shaking, we allow you to shake us. If we need a molding, we allow you to mold us, Father. That's why we're here. We are not playing church. We are the church. And Father God, thank you because we ask for opportunities where we can uh, intentionally Open our mouths and sow the seed with whoever comes in contact with us, Father God. It doesn't matter who that person is. It doesn't matter what status that person has. It doesn't matter if that person is frightful or deathly ill. Father God, every opportunity to raise up your name. Father, every program that we do, it's all good but not if we forget you, not if we don't testify of you. Father God, every morsel that we give out, every contact that we have, Lord, they have to know that they are in contact with God, that God is looking upon them, that God is caring for them, that there's hope in God. And Father God, that we can reflect that as your church. Lord, we are here we are here as representatives of your kingdom. And Lord, we are called to sow the seed. We are called, Father God, to be instant, in season and out of season. We are called to guard and hold precious our doctrine because it's non-negotiable. And we are called to be light and salt here. Father God, help us fulfill that vision. Lord, we bless you. We praise you, our one and only. Father, your name is holy, and only one name we have, Father God, that was given to us in which all man can be saved. We bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.